When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So today I'm having a conversation with Leo from Actualize.org. If you haven't seen his YouTube channel, he covers everything from spirituality to philosophy and metaphysics, and we touch on many of those topics today. If you'd like to check out any of the things that we discuss in greater depth, he's got like three-hour videos on just about all of them on his channel, but that's it for the intro. Let's hop into the conversation. All right, let's begin with psychedelics. Uh, You and I were just chatting truth, God, love, you know, all of these things. And it seems like the way in for me in my life to all of those topics which I considered hippy-dippy nonsense was chance encounters with psychedelics that became purposeful encounters with psychedelics. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I know this is a high, high high-level question. You can take it any way you want. But what what have you taken from your experiences with psychedelics that have been most valuable? (laughs) <laughs> I know this is just a challenging first question. <laughs> uh, the answer is everything. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, psychedelics have transformed my life so significantly and my understanding of myself and reality and, and mankind that it, it's impossible to understate or, I mean, it's impossible to overstate just how significant it was. I mean, I, I've had such extraordinary uh, breakthroughs in consciousness that are just absolutely superhuman. And when I have them, um, it's like my eyes are bulging out of my my skull. It's like it's that level of intensity of of understanding. I mean, I'm literally talking about omniscience of the entire universe. So like I'm not talking about just like having a trip or, um, you know, even some DMT breakthrough where you encounter some entity or some angel or something or some, you know, some semi-religious experience. Like I'm talking about literally anything you want to understand about the nature of reality as an absolute truth. Like I've become conscious of that. Mm-hmm. Um, Can we slow down here? So this is this yeah. is obviously, I think one of the questions that people have, and even I have having some experience with psychedelics that I'll sometimes ask myself is, the farther away I get from them, I ask myself, how do I know that that wasn't a hallucination? You know, because right. what I have is this memory of the experience and not the direct experience. So yeah. how do you cope with that or answer that or work through that? Right. Well, that, that takes us into epistemology. So before psychedelics, I spent a lot of time thinking about the nature of knowledge. How do we know anything at all? That's what epistemology basically means. It's a, sort of a fancy philosophical word. Some people may not be familiar with, but it just means theory of knowledge. Basically, when I was in late high school and early college, uh, for me, I had serious epistemic doubts about everything. Like, I just, 
it didn't make sense to me how humans were confident that they knew anything about anything. And this, of course, goes into religion. I was very skeptical about religion and about God. Um, many of my friends were sort of religious, but I didn't buy into that because I was sort of a atheistic materialist at that time. But then I also started questioning like, well, what is, what is rationality? And how do we know science is true? Because you know, if we, if we look at the history of science, there have been enormous epistemic, what I call blunders within science, like huge, huge uh, oversights within science, huge mistakes within science, which usually are not acknowledged by many, by many Can people. Can you give some examples they, of some of those? Uh, yeah, like, um, well, I mean, um, scientific revolutions have happened throughout history. In fact, there's a book by Thomas Kuhn, um, one of the most important books of the 20th century was written by by Thomas Kuhn. He's a historian of science, philosopher of science, and he is called the scientific revolution, something along, those are the keywords, scientific revolution, something, something. And uh, basically he introduced a notion of paradigms. So, I mean, in science we have paradigms and paradigms are basically ways of thinking about reality or about a certain set of problems within science. And these paradigms, they evolve and they change. And there's a battle within science. So people assume that science is just like, whoa, you know, we just go and measure some stuff and then we find objective truth. No, 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 no. Science is way more complicated than this. Um, there's a social construction aspect to science. Science is not just uh, objective truth, the way that many, even scientists make this mistake. It's really not that, uh, because within science, um, there are many deep metaphysical and epistemic questions like what is the method that you're going to be using to understanding reality or to even doing science? See, people just assume that scientific method is just a given something that mankind somehow discovered or where did it come from? Right. So these sorts of questions take us into epistemology. And really, there are many methodological issues and disputes within science, like how do you even know that what you're measuring and how you're interpreting the results, because you never just get a, a raw measurement, you're always interpreting the results, that your interpretations are correct, or the assumptions that you're bringing into the interpretations of your science are correct. And these assumptions, they change every hundred years or so. So, like, so this is a little abstract, I think, for a lot of people. Can you, is there an example that uh, captures this, this, some of these assumptions or what the unspoken paradigm might be? Right, well, I mean, of course, the best paradigm is that with, um, Newtonian mechanics versus general relativity mm -hmm. with, uh, you know, there, there was a huge scientific revolution that happened in the, in the early 1900s with the development of quantum mechanics and with uh, Einstein's development of special and general relativity. So basically with, with Einstein, he realized in, in trying to understand what is space and time, because that was the, the problem he was working on. He was working on, you know, the speed of light, how do you measure the speed of light? What does it mean for velocities and so forth? And so up until Einstein, Einstein's genius, why do, why do people even like as school children, everybody knew that Einstein was the genius. He's the prototypical genius. What makes him a genius? It's simply this, that he had such an open and fluid mind that he was able to question the paradigmatic assumptions of 2000 years of, you know, scientific uh, exploration and history and the assumption was the newtonian assumption was of absolute space and time the idea that all of us no matter where we are in the universe are all experiencing the same time and velocities are consistent and we can all agree what the velocities are and what the times are and then einstein said wait a minute that's just an assumption 
we've never actually tested that. We've never actually questioned that. And so he started doing thought experiments and questioning this stuff. And he realized, ah, okay, so maybe time is not a constant. Maybe time is a relativistic thing. And then when he had that insight, other insights followed, and he was able to develop general relativity. And so, therefore, literally, the idea of a static three-dimensional space in which we're in and a fixed absolute time, like right now it's a certain time for me and it's a certain time for you, no. <laughs> the time for me depends upon how fast I'm moving. And the time mm -hmm. for you depends how fast you're moving. And also, our sizes change. Like, people think, well, I'm six foot two and you're whatever height you are, and people just think, well, that's just how we are. Everybody agrees that we're all the same height or different lengths or whatever. But what Einstein discovered is that, no, like, if you're going to be flying towards the Eiffel Tower from the top, like the Eiffel Tower standing like this, you're flying at it from the top like this, the velocity you're moving at is actually going to change the height of the Eiffel Tower such that there is no such thing as one height for the Eiffel Tower. Like, this concept of the Eiffel Tower is... X number of meters tall, this is a concept most of us kind of intuitively have. It's a sort of common sense notion. But as it turns out, uh, it's not true. <laughs> mm -hmm. And so this is, this is, I think, important just to underscore that you, I've, I've seen you talk in your videos that in this particular example is that size and time is relative to velocity. Yeah. Which is to say, we all assume that we can take out the same ruler and, you know, or tape measure or whatever it is and, and measure the Eiffel Tower and come to a quote unquote objective measurement. But really, that's because we're all moving at the same sort of velocity. And yeah. were we to move at very different velocities with the same quote unquote same tape measure measurement method, we would get different answers, which calls into question objectivity, calls into question all of these, the most basic fixed assumptions that you could make about the size of something, how much time has gone through. And then that causes you to go, oh my gosh, what else could be relative that I have considered as an absolute truth? Yes, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, and really, the history of, of human knowledge, and here, see, we have to properly contextualize science in a broader context of philosophy, because really, science as we know it today is only like 500 years old. It came about with um, the scientific revolution in Europe, um, and, and that was really, it came from philosophy. It used to be, I mean, it used to be called natural philosophy. That's what science used to be called. Um, it was developed by people like Descartes and Newton and Leibniz and Galileo and these sorts of folks. And, um, and they did good work. It's important work. So it's very important to say here that even though it might seem like I'm criticizing science or I'm trying to undermine science uh, at, at certain points, um, sometimes people get the wrong idea that I'm anti-science. Not at all. Science is extremely important. I'm very pro-science. In fact, uh, the reason we're having this conversation is because we want to talk about how to improve science. So the problem is that science is always undergoing improvement. And, of course, scientists, if they're good, they will admit this. Uh, but most scientists and most lay people don't understand the degree to which even modern science, current science, has many epistemic errors and assumptions within it, many also metaphysical assumptions within it, which are not strictly science. In fact, they're bad science. And so one of my missions with my work is to help to correct that and to get people not to be throwing all of science out in favor of some sort of dogma or religion, but just really seriously questioning what science is because it's not an obvious thing at all. Mm -hmm. It seems, and it seems this is a good time to note that we often use science to mean two different things. On the one hand, we use it to talk about a body of knowledge you know that that we have based on scientific understanding but science is also a method for 
coming to truth, and it and I don't actually know the answer from your perspective. Are you merely taking issue with science as the body of knowledge, but are 100% behind this idea of science as a way of uh, coming to truth? This this sort of hypothesis testing, uh, ass assume that you could be wrong and try to break your assumptions. Do you stand behind that as a solid epistemological device? Um, well, <laughs> my answer is very very radical. Um, mm -hmm. For most people, my answer is too radical. And that is that you actually can't use science to reach truth. Mm -hmm. um, well, and then this, this takes us into what truth is. And there's, there's different formulations of, of truth. There's relative truth. There's absolute truth. We can get into that. But, uh, but um, there's the problem with the entire base of science as, as a knowledge base. There's huge problems there. I mean, there's, there's probably, I mean, just even, even recently I've heard articles written that like, something close to 50% of the scientific research studies and papers that are published, that were published like in the last 10, 20 years, later when they go to re-verify those studies, yeah. like 50% of them aren't verifiable. <laughs> they this just... is particularly in the social sciences. So a lot of there's, and I, I think you've, you're very familiar with this, there's uh, not just meta, meta science problems, but there's very <laughs> human problems of yes. the publish or perish and the advantages that one gets to breaking new ground as opposed to disproving someone else's thing. Yes. Uh, if you were to labor and do good science for a long period of time, you'd probably make no breakthroughs <laughs> for the entirety of your career. And that doesn't pay the bills. So what you find are people breaking new ground constantly with shoddy uh, data or interpretation of data because that's what gets them the TED Talk. And one of the most famous not to bash her is Amy Cuddy, who I'd cited many times talking about power poses and how, you know, going like this, the Superman thing can raise your testosterone. And it was such an, uh, an amazing, crazy thing to be true. And it was too crazy. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't actually the case that your testosterone was affected by the pose that you held for two minutes. And, yeah. Uh, you know, I, she was taken to task, but first she made a lot of money and had one of the most popular TED Talks. And quite frankly, it might have been the good move for her career to to uh, not doubt her own wild uh, conclusion in that case. Yeah, I mean, I've heard of that case uh, loosely in the past. And I mean, yeah, there's many of those cases. And it's, of course, we all know that it's easier to bullshit in the soft social sciences than it is in the hard sciences. And oftentimes when I, when I level certain critiques of science, uh, see, uh, scientifically minded people, they, they tend to be actually rather dogmatic <laughs> in their positions about science because science plays a crucial role in, in actually framing your sense of reality. It's not just the scientific method. It's not just how we, you know, study certain things. Science informs where you think you came from, like what you think life is, what you're doing here. Science gives you a sort of a picture of like evolution, you evolved over billions of years, and um, you're just stardust, you know, where'd you come from? You're just stardust in the end. Um, and uh, and so it, 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 it's more than just raw data and research, it, it, it's a whole worldview. And people get attached to this worldview because either you have some religious worldview or you have a scientific worldview, but or really, there's not that many options here. Most people are not are not that clever about where they get their worldview from, they kind of lean more towards religion or towards science, and they just adopt it, and that, that informs how they live their life. But um, when I level critiques against science, see, the scientific mind is very sneaky, and it will start to defend itself 
This is what the mind is always doing, no matter if it's religious or scientific or atheist or theist or whatever. It's always finding clever ways to defend itself. And so one of the defenses is to say, well, everything Leo is talking about may be true, but it's only for the soft sort of bullshit sciences that aren't real sciences. But for the hard sciences, physics, biology, chemistry, maybe even include mathematics in there, logic, um, for these sort of like computer science, for these sciences, what Leo's talking about doesn't apply. And, and, and so I like to go to the really, to the heart of the problem, which is let's talk about how Artists. physics is wrong. Let's talk about how chemistry, I mean, there's, there's a lot of deep epistemic and metaphysical problems within physics, fundamental theoretical physics, like quantum mechanics and the interpretations thereof. And, um, and so, yeah, so this applies across the board. And also going back to your earlier question, it's not just the, the knowledge base that I have a problem with, it's the methods itself. The methodology is not questioned deeply enough. And really, most of the epistemic blunders come from the lack of questioning of the assumptions behind the methodology of science so itself. Let's go there. Let's take the hardest case, right? Let's take the, the, under, the underpinning. Let's We're go getting with physics serious here. Let's this go is, with it. Yeah, let's, let's take a hard stuff. one. <laughs> I, well, I think my audience has is, is, uh, been taken mostly on board with like, you know, people have their own agendas and they lie to you and you can't trust this and you can't, you know, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit in terms of skepticism. Uh, but let's go for one of the, the harder ones, it sounds like, which is the underpinning metaphysics, I suppose, you know, mm -hmm. uh, of, of this. So this is one that I, I actually don't know the direction that you're going to take it. What are the paradigmatic assumptions of the scientific method that are flawed? Oh, boy. <laughs> Where to begin? I'm, I'm actually writing a whole book about this. Uh, part of my life's work is to help to to popularize some of these ideas, which uh, I've spent like literally decades contemplating and researching on my own. And I'm actually shocked at how bad most professional scientists and academics are on these topics. Generally, what I see is that most, most scientists actually, they're not in the business of questioning science or thinking deeply about science. They're in the business of doing science, which is a very different thing. It's sort of like the difference between uh, knowing how to drive your car and being a good mechanic or engineer of cars. These are these are very different things. Like your grandma can probably drive her car, but she doesn't know anything about how to fix it if it breaks. Same with me. So <laughs> yeah, and yeah, same with me. I like I get my oil changes. I don't do my own oil changes. I wouldn't know how. Um, it's just easier. And uh, and so most people, assume, the the general population, sort of assumes that. Well, scientists. Surely a scientist with a PhD who works at MIT and Caltech or Harvard, surely this physicist or whatever, he has a real good understanding of science. It's like, no, he has a real good understanding of how to do a very narrow set of experiments within a certain paradigm, within a certain sub-sub-subfield of his little narrow specialty within a larger bureaucracy of academia. And he's able to write research papers really well. And if he's a good scientist, if he's successful, and he's able to convince his colleagues, he's able to, you know, discuss issues with them, but it's very narrow technical work. And just because you're good at doing that, and just because you get a Nobel Prize for doing that, does not mean you actually understand or have thought deeply about the nature of science. Mm -hmm. So, so, so what are some of these, these paradigms that, that are going unquestioned? Um... God, uh, it's it's such a deep question that it's hard to know where to begin. Um, one that, and I don't correct me if I'm not on the right track here, but it's even you know ever since I saw the Matrix, one of the the idea of an external world has right. always the idea that we are measuring something outside of ourselves, 
when you could just as easily do the thought experiment that you know this could be a simulation is the most simple way to put it right. and to say how would I distinguish between fantasy of my own mind, totally solipsistic, and it's just me, <laughs> versus there is something outside of myself. And the answer that I go, I have, I don't know. I just, uh, it's an axiom that I have, right. which is that there's a world outside of myself, and I treat it as separate from me. Well, but I can't yeah, prove so, it. Um, right. So, so this takes us into the, the whole materialistic paradigm. Basically, modern science has a has a paradigm of reality, what I, is what I call materialism, or you could call it scientific materialism. Um, other ways of calling it would be, um, um, well, atheism also is, is, is a big part of it. Um, mechanism, reductionism. So basically what do all these isms boil down to? All of them kind of combine together into the modern scientific framework or paradigm. It assumes fundamentally that the world or the universe is a objective thing that exists in three or four dimensions or however many dimensions doesn't really matter but it assumes that it's an objective thing which exists independent of our consciousness and that consciousness or the mind is some sort of much higher level much later emergent phenomenon that comes about billions of years into yeah. the evolutionary process. So there's like 13 billion years of pre-existing universe yes. and then consciousness flips on whatever million or billion right. years ago. And and we are we can through whatever cosmic background radiation figure out that there was a time when consciousness did not exist and that was just an emergent property of these organisms surviving. Yeah, so another assumption key assumption there is that consciousness is something that living beings mm -hmm. do. So you so for example, if you tell a, a modern scientist or physicist that well, uh, what about a rock being conscious? They'll laugh at you, right? Because mm -hmm. they assume that consciousness comes from the brain, from the neurons. Obviously, we know this. We can put an EEG on you and and see that you know if you're if if we shoot you in the head, your your brain will die, and consciousness all the, all the indicators of consciousness will go to zero, and so yada yada yada. This standard sort of materialistic explanations of stuff. Um, and so this is, there's an assumption that consciousness is something living beings generate, um, which turns out to be a flawed assumption. It, it's, not, it's not really questioned very much. Um, there's other assumptions. So there's assumptions that... Uh, Can you talk about how, how someone might, I mean, I think the answer is psychedelics, but I'm curious if there's just a thought experiment that someone can do to, to get to that level of skepticism that living beings aren't the only things that are generating consciousness via their brains. Right. So... Um, yeah, this is gets this gets very tricky. Consciousness is very tricky, uh, so I have to I have to <laughs> I have to issue a caveat here for the audience, is that at times it might seem like I'm making outrageous claims. I make sometimes I make very radical epistemic or metaphysical claims about reality or consciousness, and you might wonder why is he saying this? What is his evidence? What is his proof for saying this? And you might think that I'm talking from a position of dogma as though this is some sort of ideology that I have or beliefs that I have adopted. So you have to really clearly distinguish here between beliefs or ideology or speculations you have, or maybe the way you think reality is versus direct consciousness of what is actually true. So these are two very different things. And I'd like you to open your mind to the possibility that yes, you can adopt all sorts of beliefs about the nature of reality. Um, and those can be right or wrong. But what I'm really more interested in is direct consciousness of absolute truth, what's absolutely true. So most people 
don't have this even in their mind as a possibility that you can have beliefs or ideas or scientific models on this side over here, that's one thing. And then you have direct consciousness of absolute truth, which is over here, which is a separate thing. And so just keep in mind that maybe this is possible. Maybe right now you don't know how this is possible or why you can be so certain that it's different from this stuff over here, but it is possible. And so what I'm talking about is direct experiences of consciousness. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, yeah, I want to flag that as something I know that we're developing. But yeah, so, so the is... problem with these conversations is that they're going to sort of multiply, and there's going to sure. be there's going to be all these different threads we can follow up on. But let's uh, yeah, let's just just to... a flag to come back to is, yeah. is how does one know, you know, directly the direct versus what I what I think everybody yeah there's there's the map and there's the territory and I think a lot of my audience goes the map is not the territory and yeah. I and I get that. How do I become the territory? <laughs> you know, how do I become one with it? So let's. I, it seems sounds like well, we need to uh, do some groundwork. Well, many many people by this point are familiar with the map is not the territory. Sort of a it was popularized by NLP and and others. Uh, it's an Alfred Korzybski phrase. It's a great phrase. It's a beautiful phrase. It's an important phrase that many scientifically minded people don't fully appreciate because most scientists. It's another problem with the materialistic paradigm is that it sort of splits the map from the territory. And uh, it works with maps, and it forgets all about the territory. Like, you can get so obsessive about making maps of reality that you just make maps and maps and maps. Just imagine a cartographer who spends his whole life just making maps. And then after 50 years of doing that, he even forgets that the maps correspond to anything real. Mm -hmm. <laughs> He's just and lost just, in the maps. Yeah. And so for those of you who haven't heard this phrase, maybe it's the idea that we're, when we look out and you look out into your room or the world that you have uh, – models of how things work and you know you flip the light switch and the lights turn on and you often don't engage without all of that overlay and because it's because the map is useful for navigating a territory and it gets you to where you want to go but we often forget and sometimes can just you know like somebody who's playing a video game and is just like i do with some of these games don't even look at the video game i'm in the bottom right hand corner just maneuvering through this map we forget that there's a territory that it's supposed to correspond to yeah 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 it's it's a very sneaky problem um it's a very big problem for for scientists and for for lay people as well i mean uh, a really good way to illustrate this this issue is um like look we can be here we could talk about antarctica for an hour I can describe to you all the features of Antarctica, the animals that live there, and the temperature, and what it looks like, and how beautiful it is, and all this sorts of stuff. And the audience could be listening to all that, and they have pictures in their minds about Antarctica, and they've seen it on the map, if they look at the globe and so forth. But none of that is the same thing as actually flying to Antarctica and being there yourself. Right, So that's the key distinction we're making. You can have all sorts of beliefs about Antarctica. You can believe it exists or it doesn't exist. E even if you believe it exists, that's still a belief. Now, you might say, well, but it exists. Well, you believe it does, but you've never actually been there. You don't know if the, that region on the map corresponds to anything real. And you might also discover that what you see on the map is very different from what you encounter in real life. Like, who knows what's really going on in Antarctica? I mean... It could be a tropical paradise there for all you know, and they're just the government. The government is lying to you because they, you know, they want to use that real estate for you know developing weapons or something. You don't, sure. you don't really know. And even beyond that, the map, uh, there are assumptions baked into the map, which is that the shape of the landmass is what matters, and the reality of Antarctica is infinite. But when you get there, it might be the smell. It might be that there's no smell of you know a factory for for four thousand miles or something like that. So. The map has implicit assumptions about what to pay attention to, 
and Antarctica just is, right? So you, you get there and all there's there's a, a infinite another amount of inputs that you could choose to focus on that might become more important than the shape of the overall landmass. Yeah, and also just you have to also notice how, how much detail is lost with a map or with a model. Mm -hmm. Like compared to what you see on the globe, if you go to Antarctica, it's so much richer. It's infinitely richer and more complex than anything that a little picture of it or even a two-hour explanation of it from someone who's been there. Um, reveals to you. And so I guess the entire point of this conversation is that we're going to be talking about a lot of theoretical abstract stuff here at times. But ultimately, the point is that we're talking about this stuff so that you can go to the places that we're trying to point you towards. Um, mm. So just open your mind to the possibility that there is a place you can go to where you can actually have all these insights and direct consciousness. Like you could have direct consciousness of absolute truth. Um, you can experience states of omniscience in which you become conscious of the entire functioning of the universe and how it works and why it exists and where it came from. And that's not just speculation. It's not just philosophy. You can actually do that, but you have to, you have to work at it. I like getting to Antarctica is not easy. You see, like you, it's expen it can be expensive. It can be perilous to your health. It can be dangerous. It can be cold, uncomfortable. And so, all that comes with the uh, with this work. So a lot of people they want to talk about this work, but they don't want to do the work. Mm. So we've I don't know if now is the time, but I, th this does raise the question of you know Antarctica. If I have this is one thing that I've experienced, and I know that psychedelics have, have paved the way for you to have these direct experiences. And I can say in the moment of the psychedelics, I am a believer. Like I'm I'm a hundred percent. I often when I'm in the experience, I'm like you fucking moron. Like how could you have been so foolish to ask some silly asinine question about the truth of this but then as i get farther and farther away from it i go well wait a second like that that is as real to me as the breakfast that i ate four hours ago or my memory of of something that happened in my childhood it is i no longer have direct access to that so how do you remain certain in your normal life of the absolute truth that you uh it feels like you encounter in those situations in the same way that like I'll have a dream and I'll be absolutely certain that it's true right. and then and then have a different experience which makes me question that. So right. that, that's something that I've – I felt like I've experienced the oneness and all of these sorts of things. But then as I get away from it, I go, are you sure that <laughs> that was – Yeah, that, that's probably one of the biggest um, objections that many scientific materialists raise when you start talking about psychedelics. And by the way, it's important to say that I haven't just – encounter these things on psychedelics you can do it totally sober so the biggest the biggest and i have had sober experiences through meditation and so forth um so the biggest objection that scientific materialists have about psychedelics is they say oh it's just it's just a hallucination everything is just you know it's just neurons in the brain you know doing stuff chemicals i mean isn't it obvious that if you're taking a chemical putting neurotransmitters into your mind uh that that's gonna you know get you to believe all sorts of crazy, wacky things. And, you know, we know people have religious experiences and mystical experiences and people even, you know, have psychotic experiences. So what does this really tell us about absolute truth? I mean, everybody thinks that they have absolute truth when they're in fact deluded. Well, but you have to apply that same logic and doubt to your own scientific materialistic position. See, here's the fundamental problem is that the mind loves to doubt everything except its own self. So, it's not that I just went out there and did a bunch of psychedelics and then started to believe my own bullshit, <laughs> which, you know, some people tend to think. Uh, what happened was that even long before I even started doing psychedelics, uh, I was deeply questioning the nature of reality. 
and epistemology and how I know anything. I question religion, science, mysticism, philosophy, every philosophical school, everything. So basically what I did was I, I deconstructed my own mind and reality itself until nothing remained, until there was no more attachments, assumptions, or anything. And then when you do the psychedelics, that takes, takes you to even a higher level. And so what you realize is that, yes, psychedelics are, are hallucinations, but what you are failing to take into account is that everything is a hallucination. So this moment right now is a hallucination. And also we should note from the scientific perspective, this moment right now is mediated by and rendered by neurotransmitters. You cannot be having this experience without neurotransmitters in here. Now, some people say DMT is naturally produced by the brain. I don't even know, even know if we have good evidence of that. Um, seems like there's some good evidence of that, but it, it's not even about DMT. You have serotonin, you have epinephrine, norepinephrine, you have a bunch of chemicals, you have a chemical soup in here, constantly churning away. Mm -hmm. And it is rendering your view of regular life, everything you think about yourself, your family, the world, the universe, and even the scientific method that you're using to study this thing and to do the chemistry on it, that itself is mediated, as science says, obviously, by the, by the neurotransmitters in here, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, this, it's, it's, all, it's, it's almost laughably obvious, and yet almost no scientist realizes this or admits it, is that if you say that putting neurotransmitters in here, which, and psychedelics are just neurotransmitters, or, yeah, thinking of them as drugs is really a problem. They're neurotransmitters, you, different kinds. You put them in here, it changes how, how your consciousness functions. But you can't just assume that the way your consciousness functions sort of normally by default, that this is the, the true way, that this reveals the, you know, that this is the best, truest version of reality you have, or that the skepticism that is arising right now, so right now you're skeptical, you're having doubts about whether any of this is true or whether what I'm saying is true, that doubt itself, you have to recognize, is only a function of what's going on in here. So if we change this, the idea of how you do science completely flies out the window, mm -hmm. right? So you can't, um, you can't just assume that there is some sort of simplified objective scientific method and that we're using this to understand stuff and then you take a psychedelic and it sends you some, some sort of hallucination. No, 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 no. I mean, it, it's, all, it's always been a hallucination. That's what reality is. It's a hallucination. And now we should focus on this term hallucination because people don't have a good grasp of this term. I actually use this term. I love this term. I don't shy away from it. I embrace it um, because it has a very technical meaning. In psychology, hallucination means uh, perception without any input or data. So traditionally, you know, if you go to, to a mental hospital, uh, and you're, you're telling them you're, that you're seeing, you know, monkeys running around with stripes and polka dots, um, they'll say you're hallucinating because they'll say, well, you might be perceiving that in your consciousness, but, but it's, it's not, not out there. here in the objective yeah. world, right? So something's going on where you're experiencing something, but the experience isn't corresponding to any, there's nothing underneath the experience, the way we would say, you know, normal experience, like if you see a tree, we agree that that tree is over there, all of us agrees, like there's green plants behind me, all of us agree. And so we'd say, we're not hallucinating because there's actually plants behind me. 
But if you look closely, of these plants, you've got nothing but your perception of them. There's nothing ever behind your perceptions. That's an assumption. That's one of the key assumptions of the scientific materialistic paradigm is that there's something sourcing perception. Uh, and so we, uh, I like to one, one sec. I just I have a yeah. question about this. So it seems like one of the I want to give the devil a to do here, if you will, in that that uh, I suppose maybe this might be different for a schizophrenic person. But if I were to uh, walk into a tree, I would perceive pain, you know, when I smash my head into it. And so it seems that one of the things that really makes us trust the sober hallucination if you will is the perception of pain and pleasure yes. which which lends uh seriousness to to treating things as if they are real even though we're not necessarily accessing the behind the the phenomena yeah yeah and i mean yeah pain pain and fear suffering these are these are the greatest illusions <laughs> mm -hmm. because you don't question them you see um Usually when we're just sitting comfortably here on this couch or in that room, we're, we're both comfortable and our survival is not threatened. So this takes us into the issue of survival. See, um, all living beings are in an existential bind for survival. We have to be surviving all the time. If we're not surviving and we're not successful at it, then we're dead and we're not here and we can't be talking or thinking about survival <laughs> or deeper philosophical issues and asking these questions. So uh, everything assumes that you're surviving relatively well if you can't handle that nothing else is possible so um so this puts us into an existential bind so like we can sit here and be rational about things and be philosophers but then like if i take a uh, you know a knife and stick it into your gut all philosophy all science goes out the window <laughs> like nothing matter and, and, and look, notice this all of your logic and reason goes out the window too mm -hmm. there is no there's no logic or reason when i stab you with a knife in the gut at that point you're going to be reacting like an animal you're going to be yelling screaming you're going to be attacking me you're going to be fighting me biting me you're going to be you know holding your all of this is going to happen instinctually there's not going to be any logical reason behind it you're just going to be acting out to save your ass and that's because you had to because that's how you got to where you are today and so did i and so did everybody and so that's so this is one of the things that i want to give um i don't know the the sober hallucination credit for is that it does seem to be non-negotiable in those situations, and perhaps it is, perhaps the most sophisticated of Buddhist monks could get stabbed in the gut, but that's that's something that I try to remain aware of, which is, you know, we can talk and chat about what's real as much as we want, but when, when suffering is experienced, right. it rips you right out of these philosophical conversations into, that knife is real, you know, you know, is that knife outside of me or inside of me? But, I guess well, that, oh, we have to be careful, <laughs> is that real, why? So or here's, it, it I mean, grabs me as real, I should say. It, it, it grabs you, it as... but, but I mean, really question this, it's, it's, it's not very difficult to question this. Why on earth would suffering and pain have anything to do with something being real? Uh, What's the connection? Well, the connection, and again, I, 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 I'll, I'll play, I, I do agree. Yeah, with yeah, you, I love it, go, go for it. I'll play the devil's advocate here. Do it. Is that and this is the issue of survival. If I treat it as unreal, I cease to be, right? Yeah, if I treat so. this knife wound, exactly. If I treat this knife wound as unreal, I bleed out and the pain isn't real and I cease to be. And so, so the things that have persisted, exactly. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Does, does science care? I mean, like, if, if you really, if you want to be sci really scientific, let's be scientific. I mean, I'm all about being scientific. I consider everything I talk about and I do is science. It's just a higher level of science. You have to be really objective with your science. The problem here is objectivity, neutrality, and lack of bias. So 
when people make an argument against uh, what I say by saying that, oh, well, Leo, but if I stabbed you with a knife, you would be in pain and you would be, you know, a hypocrite and all this sorts of stuff. Look, <laughs> yeah, if you stabbed me with a knife, I would be in pain, but that has nothing to do with the truth of the matter. Mm -hmm. Like scientifically speaking, you know, if I stab Albert Einstein while he's giving his lecture, does that change the, the truth of general relativity? No, it has nothing to do with it. Like, yeah, Albert Einstein is a fragile uh, or was a fragile, uh, you know, creature. <laughs> he could easily be killed and made uncomfortable and, so, and all this. And whenever you're doing your science, I mean, when you're doing science, you also have to do it in very comfortable conditions. Like to do mm -hmm. science, you can't be doing science, good science in a war zone or something like that. Like you got to have a lab where things are peaceful and stable, and then you could do your science. Otherwise, you can't. And um, and universities well, sort of create that sort of cloistered environment wherein science and academia could be done, because otherwise, survival is going to be war. People are going to be fighting each other, murdering each other, and there's no science. There's no logic. There's no reason. You can't be reasonable when uh, you're when your life is in danger. Well, I actually, with that, with that small point, I would say that there is science done on the battlefield. You know, what is the best way to kill someone is, is tested and, <laughs> and, and, you know, to, 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 when do I have to put the ammo in? How much ammo can I shoot before I need Touché. to reload? These sorts Touché. of things are, are tested. Um, and so I do want to, I want to expand science beyond the things that are simply done in, in laboratories, which is. Sure. Yeah. But yeah. So it sounds like the, the, what I'm hearing. The science of killing is probably the oldest science. <laughs> Sure. Yeah, and it's and it's and it really calls what what truth is to most people and is to me, and I'm not really sure if it ought to be otherwise. Is the measure of truth is effectiveness? Does it? And I'm not saying it ought to be effectiveness, but the and way that, that we treat it. That is the original corruption. That is mm -hmm. that is the original corruption of the human mind. Is that you see, when we think about it, most people they don't they don't care about truth. <laughs> mm -hmm. Most people care about survival what works yeah they, so they, they don't care about, about what they is care about they care about what works and when i talk about survival i don't just mean physically living survival for me is a much broader notion which also includes thriving it includes success it includes reproduction it includes love it includes getting approval from your friends it includes you know going golfing with your golf buddies that's all survival that's how you survive humans invent more sophisticated ways of survival some of them are extremely ridiculous and elaborate like, you know, wearing gold chains and diamond pinky rings and all this sorts of nonsense. This is survival for, you know, kids in the hood or whatever it is. Um, um, or, you know, having a golden toilet. <laughs> for some people, this is their version of survival, even though it's completely unnecessary. But, I mean, who's to say what's necessary in life? I mean, this is all subjective stuff. What kind of food you eat, even that, you know. People have different ideas of what kind of food they need or want and... A lot of a lot of the food that people eat is garbage, poison, and they still love it. <laughs> For them, it's survival. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so, so it's so very what is much the problem with treating. What is why why is it corrupting? I, you said that's the original corruption is that the that the measure of truth is effectiveness. That I think is goes unspoken and completely assumed by the way that we behave. Right, like we. How do you know that that and people will say like you know well the social science is never put. Uh, man on the moon and it's you know the measure of of the, the truth of the physics was that it was effective it yes. did what we wanted it to do right uh what uh, else is there other than right. effectiveness right so this is gets us into the this is what you're talking about here is sort of the pragmatic conception of truth mm -hmm. um and a lot of people these days along with scientific materialism comes uh, sort of impl all this stuff is very sneaky and implicit you don't really know you're carrying this around in with you but you are uh a pragmatic conception of 
of life. It's sort of this pragmatic philosophy that, well, like, you know, we can do all this philosophy and fancy talking and academic stuff, but in the end, I mean, what really matters is how I feel about my life. Do I have the kind of girlfriend I want? Do I have the money I want? All this sorts of stuff. And even within the science, this penetrates into the scientific domain in the sense that, look, when you fundamentally think of reality as a material objective object, a collection of objects that are kind of just bouncing around in a mechanistic way, and that that's all that reality is, it's just mechanics, pure mechanics. And you boil everything down to just physics. It's just atoms bouncing around in, in, a, in a giant three-dimensional container that is the universe. When you boil it down to that, then yeah, what else is there to life but just the mechanics of life and just you know survival of the fittest and reproduction? That's like all there is, and then how you feel about it. And, um, and then within science, yeah, we, we see to get to get humans to actually agree on worldviews and on their thinking about reality, it's very effective to have some sort of external objective standard, some sort of measure like a ruler or a yardstick that we can use and all agree upon because that helps us to build a consensus and all kind of be thinking along the same lines. And this is necessary to build a society with millions of people and to have a university and so forth. And I mean, science is very much a collective activity. It involves consensus building. So... Um, so within hard sciences, we tend to um, cite examples like landing a man on the moon. Yeah, that's effective, but, but also look at like this. Look, we can turn this around on the scientists because the atheist would say, well, you know, if, if, if I was a Christian, I, I came to you and I said, well, God exists and, and, you know, you should believe in God and you should believe in my Christian dogma. As an atheist or a rationalist or a materialist, you would say, um, well... Maybe I'll even grant you that God makes you happy because, you know, you have this belief in the afterlife and this makes you happy in some way. And this may be even good for you because you, you act nicer. You're more moral because you're afraid that you're going to go to hell. So that, you know, that, that gives you a little incentive to not be an asshole to your family and so forth and not to commit crimes. And so, yeah, maybe that's even good. I'll, I'll grant you that's, that's even good for maybe for society. Maybe it's even good to have this sort of illusion, but it's just an illusion. It's a wishful thinking. It's not true, right? Mm -hmm. That's how atheists would argue against religious dogma. But notice that when the atheist argues this way, the atheist is arguing for actually something, some notion of truth which is deeper than just utility. Are they? So what I perceive is that they're arguing from just a different level of survival effectiveness, which is to say that in their life, the, that, that what effectively gets them certain, they don't need the, the man in the sky type God. And so what works for them to survive is... Uh, intellectual posturing or uh, these other sorts of things that that get them and so I wonder if they really are arguing for a truth that goes beyond effectiveness or for just for a different rubric for effectiveness in their own life they, they may not know that they are but I would submit to you that any serious intellectual or scientist or rationalist if you really sit down with him for hours and you corner him you, you got to really corner him because he's going to be slippery his mind's going to be very slippery so if, if you take a pragmatist and you really corner him, eventually you'll corner him into such a position where he, he will be forced to admit that there is something that he values that we might call essential truth, truth that is not simply utility. Because the problem with a utilitarian or pragmatic notion of truth is that it, it becomes, it's so easily corrupted and it leads to so many uh, falsehoods. So let me give you some examples here. Um, let's say you want to be a pure pragmatist. And you believe that, like, what is scientifically true, objectively true, is just that which is 
effective. Well, there's a lot of effective stuff that you can do, which we know is not going to be true in the long run. Like for I example, mean, so one of the, the you, you can the land gun. like you can land a man on the moon, probably using Newtonian mechanics. Sure, you probably don't. I don't know. This is technically true. Uh, you probably don't need gener uh, Einstein's general relativity to land a man on the moon. A great because, example that is even more simpler is of the loaded gun. Brett Weinstein brings this up, which is the idea that you treat all guns as if they're loaded, and yeah, that's a very I, effective way to behave around guns. But we all have this intuition that, like, but that's not true. Like, some of these guns don't have bullets in them. So, right. if, if, the, if whether or not you need general relativity to get to the moon, I don't, well, I don't know either. Well, look, here, here's the here's the, the 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 crux of it is that lies can be extremely effective, sure, and falsehood can be extremely effective, and deception can be extremely effective. And in fact, the majority of what we're doing in the world is we're spinning. Our mind is constructing fictions, illusions, ideologies, dogmas, false beliefs, which are extremely effective for short-term survival. But then later we realize they're not true. Mm -hmm. So is it the case that you can't the just you can't just operate in life based on what is effective because that will lead you down the road of what I call devilry. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the things that is probably devilry in me is that my – maybe there's a kernel of it, but my interest in the truth, which I would say runs deeper than most people's, comes from a recognition that while lies are effective in the short term, that maybe there's something in it for me if I pursue this truth and take the short-term hit. But I haven't totally let go of the idea that truth might be bliss, truth might be – you know, might be – an end to suffering. Like I still want the carrot, if that right. makes sense. And right. and quite frankly, I don't know how I wouldn't. <laughs> right. And um, and yeah, that, that's also survival. So the the problem is that the ego mind, um, it can't help itself. It's selfish. This is the fundamental problem. <laughs> Everything that we're talking about here, all these problems, ultimately boil down to just selfishness. It's just mm -hmm. selfishness. You're being selfish, and. That's not a judgment on you. I'm not judging you and saying that I'm above you because I'm selfless. <laughs> no, we're all in an existential bind. We're all selfish to various degrees. Um, and your selfishness has consequences. And even all the problems of science, they all boil down to selfishness. And, and your example with the, you know, getting stabbed with the pain and not being able to, and conflating pain and suffering with truth and reality as evidence for truth and reality, this is also just selfishness. You're only doing that because you're selfish and you're you're looking out for your own life and your own survival and you had to do that to get to where you are today, but um but notice notice something that <laughs> that selfishness itself might be untrue. Mm -hmm. And so this is this is I think one of the. I I guess you can get there with meditation. The only thing that even makes this possibly understandable by me is the fact that I've done psychedelics and I have had those experiences of the dissolution of the self, which for me was horrifying. <laughs> I hated it. Um, I gripped it as tight as I could as it slipped through my fingers and was, it, it was the most challenging experience of my entire life, bar none. Uh, but yeah, to experience awareness, mostly independent of a self is I think one of the promises of psychedelics. Uh, and, and is why I can follow this conversation as opposed to just mere conjecture of like, oh, I, I, have, I have had that, a glimpse of that in my own life. And I presume that, you know, with your extensive psychedelic well, experience. Well, what is the self? 
And why do, and why is it important? Like you have to ask yourself, and this, and this is where you start to see the, the breakdown between truth and utility and survival, is that if you look at it from a very objective point of view, look at it from the point of view, not of an individual creature or a human, but from the universe itself. Like, do you believe the universe itself has a self? Do I believe? I, I don't have a belief regarding that, I don't think. I, well, I, I mean, science on. would say no. Like, the, if you ask a scientist, does the universe have a self? Like, why, mm -hmm. why would the universe have a self? Does a rock have a self? I mean, what I would say I'm uncertain is where I'm at, but I, I understand what you're saying is that many people and most scientists would presume that selves are, you know, monkeys, humans, maybe some dogs, but that's about as far as we go. And what about, um, like, um, what about life itself? Why, why are we assuming that life is more important than not life? Why is survival important at all? Why does it matter? Well, Sure, and I think these, the answer that people would give is that it's an axiom, and it's because it comes down to fundamental experiences of pleasure and pain and things that we right. selfishly but, I mean, this, make this, this, is not, this is not rocket science. Like right now, right now, you who are listening right now, just, just realize that there's absolutely no reason, there's no logical scientific reason for why you should live versus not. There just isn't. Like, just recognize this. <laughs> sure. Right? Sure. There, there's no reason. So from a truth standpoint, there absolutely is no reason, for example, why you should survive and some child in Africa should die. Like, uh, there's no reason why my life is more important than your life. Mm -hmm. There's no reason why a mouse's life is less important than a human's life. All of these things, can you just see that it's just pure selfishness? The reason I think my life is important, the reason I want to feel good, the reason I want money, the reason I want sex, the, the reason I want pleasure, the reason I want to live for 80 years and not experience any disease is simply because I'm me and, and I don't want to suffer. But I mean, this is, this is, this is purely selfish. Sure. So, and I guess this is, this is the thing. Do we, do we not endorse in this very active conversation the that the self is not an illusion and again I, I i tend to be open to your but i want to i want to tee you up to answer this i'm sitting here feeling as me you're sitting there feeling as you with the experiences of pleasure and pain does our very conversation not endorse the idea of selfhood at the very least existing in you and i as separate entities no of course not <laughs> why would it so why would it, it why does would your it? experience so the, my experience right now in this moment is of separateness. Like I am not you. I am not seeing what you are seeing. Uh, I am. I am confined to my own sensory experience. So if I go to, to to my direct experience right now, I do feel atomized in the universe. Right. Yeah. And that's, I imagine the, that many the, people out there feel the ego, that too. Yeah. That's the ego self. Right. And 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 so here's and, a, and, you, and a lot of a lot of my time I, a lot of my time I do spend in that disconnection. But like also I can focus in. Like right now I can take my consciousness as you were talking there. Mm -hmm. I took my consciousness and I just became like right now I'm literally conscious that I'm you. Mm -hmm. And so when you say you're conscious, spell that out for me because I presume like you would not know that I scratched my leg or what felt like my leg right there. So what does that, that mean to be conscious that you are me and what is that experience? Well, this is where it gets very radical. <laughs> um, I can put it in, I can, I can say it from my point of view, or I can say it from your point of view. And really it would probably be better to say it from your point of view. You are the only thing that exists mm -hmm. from my so, perspective. So you're imagining me. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm imagining you, but you're imagining mm -hmm. me, imagining you, and I'm imagining you, imagining me. And it 
it goes like it's like a it's like a two way sort of uh, you know two mirrors facing each other into infinity, mm-hmm. like a mirrored hallway. So uh, you are imagining that I have a conscious experience separate from your own. You're imagining that. Yes. And so, by imagining it, you are hallucinating it into existence. You're creating it. So here's the whole trick of how this works, is that you are constructing all of reality, but you're not conscious of how you're doing it. Mm-hmm. And the ego mind is not in control of how it's being done. So when I say you are imagining reality, people say, well, Leo, if, if you're imagining reality, then just imagine hair growing on top of your head. Why can't you do that? <laughs> Then, you know, you're full of shit. Um, and the answer is that the the Leo ego, the human ego that, that you think is Leo, has no control over what is being imagined. Mm-hmm. It's, so it the ego can't control this. So is it, so just, I'm repeating back so I understand, that there is a me that is not confined to my skin bag, and that is imagining this experience of me separate from you having a conversation all right so let me just because there's a lot of different it's it, it can get very murky and confused let, let me just lay this out in the sort of sure i'll lay out sort of my my vision <laughs> of of how the universe works um because it's, it's actually very simple to, to state it um basically what i'm saying is that the entire universe is a field of consciousness there is nothing outside of this field of consciousness you are this entire field of consciousness. This field of consciousness is the only thing that exists. Nothing outside of it could possibly exist. And everything you see, including this room and your physical body and everything, science, everything, it's all being imagined by this universal field of consciousness or a universal mind. And that's basically it. It's the mind, the infinite mind. And so it's constantly imagining things. And the trick, though, is that what you see is the very imagination process. Usually when when we say imagination, people think like, oh, it's like daydreaming. There's multiple layers to imagination. The human mind generally has access to, you know, daydreams, nighttime dreams. We consider those imagination fantasies or thoughts. And then we kind of stop there and we say, well, that's all the imaginary realm. And then there's the real realm here, like the couch I'm sitting on, the trees behind there, the, the, the hands. But this is also imagination. Physical stuff is also imagination, which is what you realize on psychedelics, because all the physical stuff becomes very melty. It just it starts to melt, right? You've experienced this. Uh, as it's melting, you're realizing that this too is just mind. Your physical body is also mind, just a different deeper gradation of imagination. It's a much more powerful imagination. Like imagine if you had such a powerful imagination that you could imagine an apple and you imagine it so strongly that it would physically materialize right in front of you. That's literally what is happening, but your ego mind cannot do that using its normal human capacities. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. But it is happening. Like you're, you're, the, the floor you're sitting on is literally that. Got it. So I want to I want to pause. Justin, are you because I've watched a lot of Leo's stuff and I've, I've seen him talk about this. How are you tracking right now? Is this making sense? Do you have questions? What's what's going on in your head? And if the, the, any doubts or anything? Oh, throw on your microphone. <laughs> Not so much doubts. I'm just I'm just trying to keep up it. Mm-hmm. it I. I got lost halfway through the conversation, <laughs> and then I, I came back at the end. When, you popped in. Yeah, when you, uh, when you went back to everything is not real. That, that kind of makes sense to me, that concept. Okay. Um, though I, it's not something that I've ever considered. It just sounds like something that people who have comparatively done a lot of psychedelics <laughs> tend to say, yeah. So I just, yeah. Got it. Got well, it. Okay, well, yeah, so – where, yeah, I, where just, I sit, not just psychedelics, but mystics, mystics um, have been saying this for a long time. The, wi- the wisest men throughout history and women have been saying this for a long time. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you were you were reading uh, Ramana Maharshi. I, I saw, I, yep. I heard in one of your recent podasts, right? Yep. Yep. Uh, one, so one of the I quotes find that I, compelling. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah one one of the quotes I love from him is, um, he has a quote where he says. Um, uh, there can be no, there, there can be no doubt. What's I'm paraphrasing? There can be no doubt whatsoever that the entire universe is nothing but a mere illusion. Mm. So. Yeah, and where I personally sit, and I, I is, um, I have, I'm, I'm on board with the skepticism of the material world, and I've, I've, I've had that. What, I, and I've had these glimpses into what you might call uh, an absolute truth. Yet I remain open to it. Like right now, I'm in just a period of uh, epistemological and metaphysical. Like maybe <laughs> yeah. is where I is where I am with with regard yeah. to all of this, and I'm intrigued and interested in almost all of it. Would you say that the answer? I mean, not the answer. Is it more mystical experiences, more meditation? Uh, actually, even not not so. I mean, of course, those are all helpful. Um, but um, even more important, what what you need to do is you need to deconstruct your whole reality. Mm-hmm. Right. So the problem is that your mind is in an active, constant process of constructing reality, all of reality. And your mind has very clever defense mechanisms to prevent you from deconstructing the entire thing, because if you do, your survival will be completely crippled. Yes. Right. And so mm-hmm. you should be able to if you self-reflect, you should be able to notice how your mind is fooling you and defending against various things in order to keep you comfortable in your little you know, survival paradigm. Um, and so really what you have to do is you have to sit down and question everything. I mean, absolutely everything. So people sometimes think that, well, Leo's not very skeptical about some of these things. He's just engaging in wishful thinking and he's just buying into beliefs and stuff. No, 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 no. (laughs) Don't misunderstand. I'm the most skeptical person in the world. I was so skeptical that it literally killed me. Right. Like you're so skeptical that you sit down and you question everything, including your skepticism, including how you're applying your skepticism, including all of the biased ways in your application of skepticism. So, for example, when you have that psychedelic experience and then you come back later and you're like, well, maybe it wasn't true. Even that you have to question and be doubtful about. 
Because when you start to question that, you'll realize that, wait a minute, my own doubting is itself the illusion. It's just more illusion layered on top of illusion. So you have to keep, it's, it's very tricky because your mind is going to resist this in a million different ways. It's, it's very intelligent. Your mind is so intelligent about how it's constructing reality. It has to, because otherwise you would literally lose your mind. You would, I mean, people, people end up in mental hospitals over this because they start questioning reality a little bit and then they go off the deep end somewhere. They start experiencing, you know, once your mind really opens up, you can have just spontaneous, non, you know, just sober, non-psychedelic, mystical experiences, and that, that stuff can freak you out, especially if you have no, you haven't read any books about it, you haven't watched any videos about it, you have no context for it. People can start to feel like they're losing their mind, like they're going crazy. In fact, that's what a lot of people in, in mental hospitals are. And the people who are treating them, the materialist doctors, don't understand this. So they're treating them as though these people have serious mental disorders. A lot of times they don't have serious mental disorders. They're just literally their reality is being deconstructed through some sort of natural process spontaneously. And they don't know how to cope with it. And these doctors are just medicating them or, you know, just giving them the standard materialistic explanations for things. And that, that doesn't help them. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like – so it, it does sound like, you know, if, if this person who is having a – and a uh, schizophrenic but potentially non-dual experience, which is truer than, than anything that's going on in that hospital, is given certain drugs that it will affect them. So it, it does seem that we are uh, pulled between two levels of reality. One is this survival, human, two eyes, you know, ten fingers, life, and another is something more. Uh, is that – and it doesn't seem that there's an option perhaps until death to – let go of the human survival part, or I guess that would quickly result in one's death. Yeah, I mean, if you want to keep surviving, you got to keep surviving. Mm -hmm. e even if you're enlightened, you still have to participate in survival if you care about surviving. And some people don't. And I mean, many, many mystics and so forth, they've just died. They've, I mean, <laughs> yeah. That's the thing is that when you really have no no self anymore, if you truly transcend the self fully, you you literally don't care if you physically die. This is something that has concerned me for a while because you know I, I understand people uh, talk about non attachment and I, it's uh, perhaps a perfect ideal, but the perfect teacher dies very quickly. <laughs> they don't make it very long. So right. what we're left with are it seems like imperfect teachers who still have an attachment of some sort, right. whether it's a preference for life or they just like food or whatever, they they haven't gone the whole way. And so it's not a very uh, – it's not very memeable, this, this <laughs> let yourself go and die because it just snuffs itself out as soon as it's discovered exactly. every time. Yeah, it's, 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 it's perfectly tautological. So in other yeah. words, if – and I mean this this is much more profound than even you realize yet, but the only reason you – are alive here in this form is because you're afraid of going into a different form. So oh, the, I'm, the, yeah, yeah. the only thing that keeps you literally here on this planet is your fear. Mm -hmm. If you didn't have fear, you wouldn't be here anymore <laughs> and you wouldn't be going through all the suffering. So you're, you're literally creating this dream. You're in a dream. You've constructed this dream because you're afraid to go to a higher dream. Sure. And so that fear is, the linchpin that holds absolutely everything together, your, your fear of death. And so, uh, so of course, you're gonna, every, everything in your psyche, everything you've been taught, all of your instincts, all of your desires, all of that is going to turn you against 
completely deconstructing your sense of self and reality, because if you did so, you would cease to be here. <laughs> so it, it, it all perfectly it all perfectly matches together. So for you personally, do you see yourself one day starving to death? I mean, what is what is your and I mean this uh, not not flippantly like is it? Goals, goals, I suppose, are, are counter to what we're even speaking of because the idea of a goal presu presumes a preferred outcome. Uh, what, what is as you ascend or become more enlightened? Does that necessarily, if successful, result in your complete lack of attachment and then subsequent death? Yeah, in practice, it's a lot. It's a lot trickier. Um, I still have many attachments. And uh, uh, and fears which which keep me here, and um, honestly, it's a struggle. I don't I don't know where I'm going to end up. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, honestly, if I, if I if I like went balls to the wall with it um, all the way, then what would happen is that <laughs> just the entire material universe would just cease to exist. And yeah. the entire world and everybody with it, including myself, would just cease to exist. And I would just rest as an infinite singularity forever. Um, that would be the ultimate state. <laughs> um, you, you basically be, so what happens is that you become more and more conscious. You become more and more conscious of your attachments and why you're attached to this thing, why you need sex, why you need food, why you need money, all this sorts of stuff. And then you become more and more conscious, and then slowly you you lose you lose interest in these material things because you've experienced them enough to the point where it's like, yeah, okay, I know how it works, it's cool and everything, but like, I want something deeper. Is there anything deeper I can get? And then you realize, oh, there's a little bit deeper, and you go a little bit deeper, and a little bit deeper, and a little bit deeper, and what you realize that is, at some point you realize that what you're really after is you're after consciousness. You're not after anything else. The money, the sex, the business, the, all the success and all this sorts of stuff, these were all substitutions for inferior substitutions, limited substitutions for what you really want, which is pure, absolute, unadulterated consciousness and love. And so you start to move towards that and you relinquish more and more of yourself. But as you're doing that, it, it, it burns your ego. <laughs> it burns your sense of self away and it feels very painful and you don't know how far, how deep you want to go most of us have sort of a limit to how, how far we're willing to go. Um, Does but free will f figure into this. I, I saw an early video of yours. Mm -hmm. That was uh, a determinist worldview that I, I think I understand pretty well and subscribe to, to, you know, one of one of my common experiences on psychedelics is just like, this is, I don't want to say ha happening to you is, is doesn't do it justice because that implies a separateness. But in my day to day life, the ego likes to think that I can make choices and do things better or worse. And then when I get into these, it's like, this is the ride. <laughs> you are you are strapped in, so stop beating yourself up for not being where you couldn't possibly right. be. Um, it, so do, do you have? Do you come back around to free will at any point? Yeah, you... yeah. It's it's my my views on free will have have evolved uh, quite a bit because that video you referenced is like five five years old or six years old. Um, and since then, I've had some huge epiphanies about how will works. So um, it's it's very twisted and fascinating. Uh, so basically, it's it's sort of relativistic. We if you're in the human state of consciousness that that you and I are sort of in right now, sort of ordinary conventional dual consciousness, um, like separate selves, then you could say we do have free will, 
because our notion of free will is sort of a relativistic thing. Like what we really mean by free will is that like, yeah, I could, I could choose to go to the gym today or not go to the gym, eat that donut or not eat that donut. And in a certain pragmatic sense, we have that option. We have that choice. Um, but when you become really, really conscious, what you realize is that the entire universe, everything that's happening here is absolute truth. Absolute truth is absolutely true under all circumstances. It can't be anything other than what it is. It's a perfect tautology. And therefore, this is sort of the, the twisted uh, paradox of it, is that when you reach God consciousness, you realize that God is love, and it cannot be anything other than love, and therefore everything that's occurring and has ever occurred has always been absolute love, and that it's happening for the purpose of love, and that it cannot literally be anything else, and that God himself, even though we could say God has infinite will by willing all of this into existence, God itself doesn't really have free will in the sense that all of God's will is going 100% into the generation of absolute love, therefore God cannot be anything other than absolute love, and it couldn't be anything less than that, Therefore, even God itself doesn't really have free will because it gave all of its free will towards infinite love. Mm. So, so this is a good place to come back to the question that I'd flagged earlier. I remain open to all of that, but how do you know that right now? So what is, right. what is as, as something other than a belief or a memory? Because that's what I remain, uh, I suppose, skeptical or curious about is even, when I look in my own index of uh, psychedelic experiences, they, they do exist as memories. Now, certainly some of it has been integrated. Um, and has become the uh, you know part and parcel of how I experience life. But so for that, is that something that you feel like you're experiencing, or is that or so, are those words that you are repeating? Well, it's a little trickier than that. Um, well, first of all, I would ask you, how do you know anything? <laughs> people, people love to people love to question how do you, Leo? How do you know this? How do you know that? Well, how do you know anything? Like really, when you start to deeply question, what you realize is that you don't really know anything, and anything you think you know, including when you're sitting there doubting stuff, um, that's also that's not something you know. That's just something you believe. Sure, sure. Um, no, I and I my my answer to that would be, I'm using language in a manipulative, uh, often espousing beliefs without tapping into the true experience. I have, I do have, when I tap into it, a direct experience of something. But right. as I tap into it, I am unaware of God or love or, or the, right. the absolute truth. Well, when here, I, here's when what, I hit that, ex here's my, my pay dirt is not that yet. Or Here's what will help either. you is that actually the answer to how do you know it, anything is actually very simple and clear because um, there's only one way to know something is to be conscious of it. Mm -hmm. You only like, how do you know you exist? Yes, it would be, you know, like Descartes said, I think, but I think a better formulation is I, I am, therefore I am, you know, I am right, conscious. right now, right now you're conscious that you exist. Mm -hmm. So that's how you know. But see, if I wanted to t sort of adopt your position, I could say, well, well, maybe, but maybe you don't exist. Cause I mean, consciousness, what is this? I mean, maybe you're just, maybe it's just a belief or something. Well, this but is see, my question. No, you're are conscious you conscious of it? You're are conscious, you conscious of, it? of Well, this is my question. Are you conscious of God as love as we're speaking? It's a little tricky to answer that because there's different, there's a lot of different ways in which one could be conscious of it. So there could be much higher states of consciousness that I could be in where I could just be literally enraptured in ecstasy, like 
squirming on the floor. Like I, I've, I've literally experienced infinite love to such a degree that just like you would be plastered on the floor in ag like writhing in, in sexual ecstasy, like that much. Love. So obviously I, I'm not experiencing that right now. Yeah, <laughs> but um, makes for an easier conversation. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, yeah, you can't have a conversation. You can't even walk in. in you can hardly walk in that um, state. So the state I'm in now is much lower. But I've had enough of these states to the point where I re like I can tune in right now and just realize that yeah, this whole room is God. And see, love is a love is a much more profound thing than than an emotion. People. People, people misunderstand love. Um, it, it sounds very sort of hippy dippy and and new agey to say that everything is love, because people again, the part of the materialistic paradigm is that it assumes that love is a human emotion or feeling that living beings have, and only like the higher living beings. Like you probably don't think that a an ant has much love, but like maybe a mammal has some love, but a human has more um, capacity to love. But that's, this is just a little tip of the iceberg of what love really is. Love is actually a metaphysical thing. Love is, is, is a feature or the essence of consciousness itself. So if you, if you get rid of the idea that there is anything beyond consciousness, and I mean, just notice this, you've never experienced anything beyond consciousness. So you have no scientific reason to believe there's anything beyond consciousness because consciousness is all you've ever experienced. True? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, I, even in theory, there's no way that you could experience something outside of consciousness because if you were to experience it, it would be conscious for yeah. you. And therefore, it's inside of consciousness. So when you realize this very deeply, you realize consciousness is infinite. Therefore, there cannot be anything outside of consciousness. Sometimes people say, oh, Leo, but what if you're wrong? And what if there actually is something beyond consciousness? How would you know? Well, when you experience infinite consciousness, the key realization there is that it's infinite. Infinite means <laughs> there's nothing there's nothing that could be outside of it because infinite has no outside because it goes on forever, literally. Mm -hmm. So if there's nothing outside of consciousness, this is all there is, and um, and you have direct access to it. There's not a veil of perception. So this is another assumption of the materialistic paradigm of science is that, well, there's an objective world out there, and then there's the world of sensations or perceptions in here, and what I'm seeing is just a veil. It's not the real thing. The real thing is behind the scenes. We can't access that. Well, that's true in that paradigm. But if consider that there are no objective things behind the scenes. There is no veil then. There's only perception. Perception is reality. Appearance is reality. Appearance is absolute truth. Mm -hmm. So I guess I suppose a question here. Um, is it, would oh, it oh, 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 very important? Sure. And how do I know that? Sure. Because the same way you know that you're alive, you're mm -hmm. conscious. You're conscious of it. There is. So here's the thing: is that people are trying to get to some sort of knowledge or truth through an objective, non-conscious material method, and that itself is the delusion because that is happening within consciousness. So what you have to, you have to bite the bullet of consciousness and to realize that your consciousness is not just some secondary thing that could be wrong. Your consciousness is the only thing that there is, and it's absolutely true. So if you're doubting your own consciousness, you're completely fucked. 
There's n there's no way you can make any progress towards truth if you doubt your own consciousness. Because you can't even then say that you exist. You can't even do science because science assumes that your consciousness of science is valid and true. Because mm -hmm. science well, is done by consciousness. Sure. I guess my question here is, is well, with that last piece, I go, does that not fall into the same trap of um, truth as effective? You know, like it won't work if we doubt consciousness. Like you can't even conduct science if you doubt consciousness. It seems to, it seems to me no, that even actually, the doubting you, is you, actually you can. In fact, that's how science is done today. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, I guess I guess I, I think I struggled to just to totally understand what you were saying in this last bit. Um, yeah, well, that's um, okay. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I'm I'm happy to explain further. What, just um, so, what would you like to know? I guess. Um, well, I, I'll even take it a step backwards to where I feel. On, on more solid ground in terms of understanding. One of the things that as I do my psychedelic experiences that I am encountering, and this is why I pose the question to you about language, is that there are things that I know and can state and repeat, and there are things that I am and that I exude and have integrated. And so part of the reason that I continue to go back is because I realize there's a lot that I quote unquote know, but if I inspect it, it's memory, ideology, dogma and it might not you know so take love for instance you know like mm -hmm. i know that i love just very concretely people in my life mm -hmm. but when i'm in these experiences i go oh like you're not being love and that doesn't mean just saying i love you and hugs and kisses it means tapping into that wellspring at, at a felt sensation in the here and now and so that right. was why i was sort of asking like what do i right. know like i but could it, say you know Go ahead. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, that, that's of course true. That's good. There's an even deeper layer than that, which is that when you realize your love, even if you're not feeling anything, like mm -hmm. like you could you could even be hating somebody, and you could still recognize that as love, mm -hmm. um, uh, or you could just be sitting quietly meditating and not experiencing anything special or positive, and you would still be love. In fact, right now you are love. <laughs> mm -hmm. So let's, but, let's but you're not conscious of it, and so. See, there's no, there's no way to get underneath consciousness. There's no way to get around consciousness. There's no way to avoid consciousness. Either you're conscious of some of these things I'm saying, or you're simply not. And then the work is just to become conscious of it. And from your point of view, you might say, well, maybe it's bullshit and maybe I can't become conscious of it. Well, then that's what, that's where you are and that's where you'll be until one day you become more conscious. See, so there's no way around consciousness. So, so question here, and this is even stepping backwards, but uh, how does how does morality fit into oh, this sort of a scheme for you? Because this is something that I've been questioning: is in in a world where there are preferable things and non-preferable things, uh, and you assume that consciousness is shared by people with their, your same shape, and even if they don't have your same skin color, and even if they're not the same gender, then you can start you start to expand the circle of who matters. And, it sent, and it, for a while to me, it seemed like, oh, well, this is going to expand to everything. But then I go, wait a second. If everything is love, and I've heard you say, you know, even the Holocaust is an expression of love. Even the most horrifying things are mm -hmm. expressions of universal love. Where does morality and right and wrong <laughs> fit into – and I mean this, I guess, at a, uh, an experiential level of, of myself as a person and not myself as uh, God <laughs> – <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's the whole problem is that when you take it as yourself as a person, it, it can't work. So you have okay. to take yourself as God. As God, <laughs> that, That's the problem. So see, um, so I'll, I'll answer the question from both sides because I know you mm -hmm. want the, and the audience is interested in sort of the practical. Um, but first, let me answer it from the sort of the very highest perspective. From the highest perspective, if you realize that everything is love, then 
that's it. You're done. There's no problems. There's no more, and there's no more questions about morality. You don't care about morality anymore. It doesn't, literally doesn't matter because literally you're conscious that anything that happens is absolute love and nothing could be better. Everything is absolutely perfect. You're in paradise. You're in heaven. Um, and so, great. <laughs> so we cut the Gordian knot. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, literally, literally, it's such a radical, it's such a radical shift in perspective that, um, I mean, you're you're literally in ecstasy. Like you start to experience orgasmic levels of, of ecstasy. Like you think an orgasm, like the, imagine the best orgasm you've ever had and then multiply it by a thousand. That's what it's like to realize that everything is absolute love. Like even the Holocaust, racism, murder, everything evil that was ever done to you by your parents and enemies and everybody who hates you, everything that has ever been done, that is all love. When you realize that, it's such a huge relief but the cost of that is that you completely give up yourself. You can't have a self anymore at that level of consciousness because it, literally there's no, there's no self to defend because what is yourself is nothing other than a collection of defense mechanisms from the realization of everything being love. And see, at that point, you don't care you, the, the question like, well, but Leo, what, what happens tomorrow? What if I get what if I get run over by a car? What if somebody shoots me? Shouldn't I be worried about that? Like, no, you don't care. It, it doesn't it doesn't it literally it doesn't matter. You've realized you've reached such a level of consciousness that you realized that caring about anything at all is completely idiotic. And I mean that across the board. I mean, you no longer care whether your mother dies or not. You no longer care about slavery existing or not. You no longer care about the Holocaust or terrorism or like you, you realize this is the key. This is the most radical level of consciousness is that you realize literally that absolutely every difference that you thought was real is completely imaginary and by it's just a bias. You have a preference for one difference over another. Like you. Like you say, well, but Leo, there's a difference between slavery and non-slavery, right? Mm -hmm. Ordinarily, we would say, yeah, of course, there's a huge difference between those two. But in this state of consciousness, you realize that difference is imaginary. It has no reality or substance to it whatsoever. And it doesn't even matter which one of those is happening. And then you're in love. You literally fall head over heel in love with the entire universe. And then that's it. Life is the, the, the whole ordeal of life is fixed in one fell swoop. But now answering your practical question, when we come back down to human consciousness and we're living in society and we're talking about how to make a good, a good social system that's fair and equal for people, then um, now you're in a lower level of consciousness. And so now what you can do is you can say, well, okay, what morality becomes then is sort of a poor reflection <laughs> of, of that absolute, unconditional, universal love. So here we would say something like, well, to be moral and still function in the human world, uh, you want to treat others basically as you would want to be treated yourself, as though they were yourself, as though you cared about their suffering. And uh, you want to um, not be too selfish and not be too biased. And also you want to be truthful because if you're just living pragmatically for your own survival or for the survival of your tribe or your clan or your country or the, the, the whole problem here is bias, you see. What's happening is that humans are getting biased towards one thing or another thing within reality and then we're defending that and that is what's causing evil or harm to others. So, for example, if I work at Coca-Cola, the company, and I'm you know a manager there, I care about the survival of Coca-Cola and I hate Pepsi because they're my competitor and I don't care about them, so I'm biased towards my company. 
And then I don't care about you know other companies. I don't care about the environment, maybe, because I only care about the profits of my company. See, when you adopt this very biased, partial perspective, then you're going to be causing all sorts of collateral damage and evil in the world uh, through deceptive advertising and you know selling Coca-Cola to children and you know, rotting their teeth and making them fat in school and all this sort of, all sorts of social problems cascade from the fact simply that you're being very selfish and limited in your perspective and attitude towards your life. And you see this within politics, you see this in your personal life, in your family life, and so forth. So basically, the whole idea, if, if we want society to be more peaceful and to be more cohesive and to function more smoothly, there's only one solution, which is be less biased, be less deceptive, uh, be more truthful, and be less selfish. And that's it. That's mm. the whole solution. It's like very simple. <laughs> Mm -hmm. the, the, only, yeah. the only problem is how much of that can you tolerate? Got it. Because you can't tolerate too much of it. Because then oh, you're going to yeah. be like, well, but Leo, how do I survive? If, 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 if I'm not going to be competing with Pepsi, you know, then they're going to fire me from my Coca-Cola job because they want someone who's going to compete with Pepsi. They're going to fire me, and then I can't feed my children, and then my, my children are going to starve. And so, see, the person is in this existential bind of survival. All of us are. And so mm -hmm. that's why we're selfish and biased and deceitful got it yeah and it seems like um one of the ways that historically we've been able to move out of that game and maybe this will take us around to uh spiral dynamics is that technology and i suppose like the increase in population has enabled larger and larger segments of the population to live without such pressing survival needs which enables you to go you know what i will get fired from my you know, job at Philip Morris selling cigarettes because I'm not going to die and my children won't starve. I'll take a pay cut and I can go work at a different company that, you know, is maybe exploiting people in some way, but it's not, it's not quite as uh, obvious as, you know, you know, selling cigarettes and jewels to kids. Uh, so it, yeah, it, it seems like there's, you know, technology is moving us forward and maybe this is where we can touch on spiral dynamics. Uh, I'll give a, just a brief overview and you can add anything you like. Spiral dynamics is, from my understanding, it was, made by this guy, Claire Graves, and it was his, uh, based on studies of a lot of different people and what they understood about their developmental psychology at different periods in their life. And it also tracked sort of almost with a, an upper limit that few people exceeded in any given time period with where society was at a certain stage. So you might say that earlier stages were very tribalistic and warlike, then you enter into this medieval, uh, listen to the, the church <laughs> dogmatism, you evolve into this capitalist individualism, into what you might call more socialist care about everyone in the environment and then beyond into uh, things that I really can't describe because they don't exist in governments. <laughs> they exist mostly in people, which is uh, yellow stage yellow and stage turquoise. And all of these stages are color-coded. So that's spiral dynamics. Is there anything you want to add to that before we sort of talk about it? Yeah, it was based on the works of Claire Graves, but also um, popularized by Don Beck and Christopher Cohen. So they deserve some credit for that. They're academics who actually wrote the spiral dynamics book. Um, and trademarked that name. Um, but yeah, it's based on the works of Claire Graves. But, uh, but yeah, that's a good summary. Basically, what I would add to that is that it turns out that when you start to study the value systems of humans across the world, which Claire Graves did in like the 60s, 1960s, he was sort of shocked to discover that there's a certain consistent progression and order to these different value systems. And there's not that many different value systems. 
And this is not just something that's part of Western culture, really it applies around the entire world. And so he developed this developmental psychological model where you can, you can actually track and see how one's cognitive development or moral development or spiritual development evolves over time and becomes more sophisticated and, um, and complex and better able to deal with the complexities of our evolving society and culture. And, um, and so he mapped that out and then the spiral dynamics guys, they color coded it and called it spiral dynamics. And so we have these, these different stages. These stages are sort of, you might think of them as evolutions of the human psyche. The human psyche becomes more refined and nuanced in order to deal with more complexity. So like if we go back 2000 years, you can imagine that most people, they weren't very educated. Their psyches were not very well developed uh, in the sense that like uh, it, was, it, was, it was a much more brutal way of surviving like the sort of spiral dynamic stage red, as they call it, where we had dictators and tyrants and we had slavery and we had feudal warlords. And so basically the way societies were structured 2000 years ago, like I'm thinking of like the ancient Roman times, is that who have, whoever had the, the largest army would just conquer and rape and pillage the neighboring town. And that was their way of surviving. And that was considered acceptable. There was not even, at that time, even the idea of a morality that said that that's wrong or, or bad, that didn't even really exist. It took, that people don't realize, that had to be evolved and developed over time. Culture had to refine itself to such a level where people realize, like, wait a minute, like, raiding and raping and pillaging a neighboring city, that's, that's evil? Like, that, that didn't compute for most people <laughs> for a long time. Mm. Um, but then, you know, we evolved beyond that, and we got into, like, the Middle, the middle Ages, and then we got into like the Renaissance era and then we got into like uh, industrial revolution and so forth. And as that kept happening, the mind became more sophisticated, it became more scientific, it became less dogmatic, less superstitious, less mystical, we might say. Um, and then and that evolution is still continuing to this day. And this is happening collectively as a society. It's happening. It's happening individually in different countries, but it's also happening in different organizations, depending what co company you're working at. Companies have different spiral stages and it's happening individually within you i mean throughout your your own life you can sort of see how your own psyche evolved you might have like when you were a teenager for example you might have been very rebellious in school you might have like fought with authority figures and you know done drugs and had difficulty disciplining yourself but then you evolved beyond that you outgrew that phase and then you developed some discipline and then you developed some work ethic and um you started caring about being a nice person where before you were an asshole, you realize being an asshole doesn't work so well. It's not, not good for me, not good for them. So you evolve and then you can continue that evolution. Mm -hmm. Great. So, uh, yeah, let's talk. I want to talk about, um, I have like a, an interested, but frustrated relationship with spiral dynamics. I'm curious what you think. So things that I enjoy about it is that it. It says that you, you can't just go to Iraq and give them democracy, and I really enjoy that aspect of it, that there's not a place that everyone is supposed to be, and there's you can't just teleport different cultures, different individuals with different backgrounds to where you might think is the preferred place for them to be, that there are stages that people must go through in order to get to what might be some of the more peaceful, harmonious stages, but if you try to skip them too quickly, you just create more chaos. Um, and so I, I really 
I like that aspect of it because I think oftentimes we just view it almost on a spectrum. It's like here's well, – here we are. My, <laughs> there's freedom on one side. There's tyranny on the other, and we just want to crank everybody right on over to freedom, and that is uh, foolhardy and just – it gets people hurt and killed uh, even worse than, <laughs> than before potentially. So I really like that aspect of it. Something that I've struggled with though is that even as I look at my own life, it sometimes feels hard for me to chart myself on this particular thing because I feel like – you know, when I was uh, 20, I was like so what would you would appear to be green on the outside, like super into the, you know, we got to help everybody and, you know, multicultural. And I traveled abroad and learned a bunch of languages and had, you know, had to had to mix and mingle. Um, and now I find myself perhaps it's after having done some business. Uh, sometimes it's more orange, more yellow sometimes with with an understanding of the what you might call the. The value of some of the exploitive capitalist systems <laughs> that, that exist out there that I pre previously was just like, this is just mean people taking advantage of the downtrodden. And now I go, oh, this was like the best solution at the time. So I and, and I and I find myself yanked to either side of green in my own life is what I would say. Um, and so I'm curious if that resonates with you or what you think of that. Yeah, I find good. myself not really landing or going through green in a meaningful way and just instead like yellow or orange, which for those people who don't know, orange is individualist, entrepreneurial, uh, capitalist, but can be very selfish. Green is very multicultural, almost to a fault where it's like there are no right answers. And like – Yeah, it's <laughs> and the so yellow... social justice warriors is <laughs> yes. green. Yeah. And, and then yellow is uh, systematic, has an understanding of everything that comes before it and starts to see the value of the previous stages and um, – recognizes that there's not just one simple solution, one size fits all. So I'm curious if yeah. you've experienced that in your own life or anything like skipping stages or finding some of them hard to really sink into. Oh yeah, I can, I can help you to make sense of that. So um, you see, first of all, it has to be said that the spiral dynamics model is very, very complicated. So like it, to really understand how it fully works, it's such a complex model, it can take 20, 30, 50 hours of studying it to really understand it. So we're going through it really fast, and also because of this, it takes time to really get a good sense of it. So when you first start, you do have difficulty placing people in certain categories. You're not quite sure where they fit. And also, it should be said that spiral dynamics does not simplistically say that you're only in one category. It says that you fall into a range of different categories with different sort of like you can do a chart where you can say like, well, you're... You've got this much green and this much orange and this much yellow, a little bit of yellow, you know, whatever. You can do kind of like a, a bar chart for, for different people. Um, so that explains part of part of the answer is that nobody is at any one color stage. We, we scatter along and we have a certain center of gravity and then there's sort of a bell curve distribution sort of away from that center of gravity. So if you're at like, um, you know, high green, low yellow, let's say, then yeah, you're still gonna have plenty of green, you're still gonna have plenty of orange in there probably, and maybe a little smattering of turquoise when you're experiencing psychedelics, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like that. Um, but also see, our cult, it, it's, it's very much a cultural phenomenon too, because what they say in the book is that really, these stages are memes, they're meme complexes. And memes are just, uh, you know, they're, they're basically collections of ideas. So the reason that when you were in your early 20s, you were heavily into the green meme complex, which is the social justice warrior sort of philosophy, trying to, to create equality for people, democracy, egalitarianism, maybe socialism, maybe a bit of Marxism, this sort of stuff, you know, all the stuff Jordan Peterson rails against, <laughs> all of that, all of that stuff. Um, 
you were into that because probably the culture, the play. I don't know where you grew up, but the I area was in Washington D.C. in college, right? You know, exactly. So, so that explains it. So <laughs> like you, you grew up in an area where that was the predominant culture, and your friends were probably in it. Your family was probably somewhat in it, and so you got immersed into that, and you just picked up these memes. You didn't think about them very deeply, and you didn't have. You didn't derive them from first principles or from direct experience. You mostly just kind of gleaned it from your professors, from your mm -hmm. friends, from the media you watched, and so forth. And so you got all that. And, you know, I got a lot of that, too, because I grew up, like, in, in Southern California. Um, you know, environmentalism and all sure. recycling. You know, you just pick this stuff up. Like, if you're living in Southern California, everyone's recycling and talking about recycling. So you just – it's like you, that's what you're supposed to do. And then when you move to, like, Alabama or someplace and nobody's recycling there and they look at you weird for wanting to recycle – you're like, what's going on here? There's like a cultural disconnect. Well, that's that's it. <laughs> that's the cultural yeah. disconnect. So anyways, you do that, but then you start to study more, and as you get more experience, you start to question some of these meme, memes, uh, and then you start to actually re-derive them from your own direct experiences. And sometimes what you discover is that, oh, you know, this meme was went too far. It was too idealistic. It was just a philosophy. It was just an idea. It wasn't really connected or grounded in anything. And then, so maybe you go into business, you start, you start a business and you realize, oh, you know, capitalism is not this evil thing that these green, you know, socialists uh, told me it was. When I started actually doing it, I realized, you know, business is actually very difficult. It is a survival game. And um, there's pros and cons to it. It's much more nuanced than just simply, you know, earning a profit is evil. Mm -hmm. It's much more complicated than that. And so now you, you, you kind of almost regress a stage but you're not really regressing. It's that you're sort of deepening your understanding of each stage. Each stage is very deep. And you can even go back to blue, for example. You might start to run your business, and you might realize, like, you know, I, I have difficulty waking up in the morning and disciplining myself to work on my business because I'm kind of lazy and I want to play video games and so forth. And then you realize, oh, that's because I'm missing important aspects from stage blue, which is also what Jordan Peterson um, – this is what he sort of preaches positively is all the positive aspects of Sage Blue, which is discipline, morality, you know, ethics, character, loyalty, um, actually, um, you know, doing the hard work rather than playing games and stuff like that. And so you adopt some of those attitudes that you were missing because you grew up in an environment that didn't really teach you blue properly. And, uh, and then you integrate that. And so the whole idea with, with this model is that it can help you to integrate these different important foundational aspects of your psyche. And it's not that one stage is better than another stage. It's that every stage builds on top of the other stage. It also so sounds you, you're, like... not a, you're not abandoning blue or orange when you go green if you do it properly. Mm. You're integrating them. And there are healthy and unhealthy ways of manifesting these different memes and stages you can go too far and they can become toxic and this is what all the culture war these days is about in our political discussions is it's all about each side is basically blaming the other side's excesses and toxic aspects while ignoring uh, the healthy aspects mm. yeah it sounds like from what i'm what i'm hearing from you is that at least in my own life there's been value towards rederiving the principles and values of each stage firsthand as opposed to being lectured about them, which was, you know, the, the, my, my understanding of, of everything up until I was out there in the world doing it was as it was told to me. You know, there was very little firsthand, let me try this out and, and, and bang into something and see, oh, that's why discipline's important or, oh, you know, that's why capitalism is important or, oh, that's why even social justice is important. Um, it was much more 
they were, as you said, not really like green in college as I look back on it was not a deep understanding of the inequality in the world and a self-reflective nature. It was almost this blue and by blue I mean like dogmatic <laughs> yes. fit in uh, all pre pray to the same God and that God just happened to be named multiculturalism or yes. or wokeness and uh, so I guess where I am at in my own life and I think it feels appropriate especially with some of the psychedelic is like I got to go do green the right way like I got to go um, rederive it for myself because you know I did I did travel and I did do these things and I see intellectually the value of a lot of these things but I do think I need to to land in it as cheesy as it sounds, and I would never have used this phrase from a heart first, you know, heart centered place, which is not where I was coming from, and I don't think where a lot of the rhetoric around wokeness and, and social justice is often coming from. Yeah, that's um, green is actually very a very deep stage, and I, and um, and yeah, I experienced a very similar thing to you, is that even though I sort of grew up in the green culture, um, in Southern California, I didn't really embody it or integrate it very deeply and uh and really when i started doing business and personal development i was really at orange i was very materialistic i wanted success i wanted money i wanted sex and these sorts of things and i spent a good five ten years doing that sort of exhausting myself on that until i saw the limitations of that and that's what happens with each of these stages is that you you if you work hard on it for five or ten years uh, eventually you exhaust it you sort of you 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 start to master it you start to familiarize yourself with it, you get comfortable with it, and then you get so comfortable that it gets boring, and you start asking yourself, well, what's next? There has to be more to life. I'm not just satisfied, you know, earning money and having sex. I need something more. And then you discover, you can discover the next stage and then start start the whole process all over again. But, uh, but yeah, what, what I realize is that every, every one of these stages is much deeper than we think, and that um, no matter how high you think you are on the spiral, you will benefit from going backwards and integrating even the very low stages, like even red, stage red. Sometimes it's appropriate to get angry and to know how to use your anger um, in a uh, in a in a healthy way, not a toxic way, yeah. or how to be dominant. You know, dominance is not just a negative quality. There are there are positive, healthy aspects to dominance. For example, with leadership and so forth, it can be effective. Um, also, it depends on what environment you're in. Like That's if you're surviving I, I, in a prison environment, you're going to need a lot of red. <laughs> oh boy, go, you, you want to learn red? Go to prison for a few years. Try surviving in prison, yeah. and you will you will have a much deeper appreciation of stage red. I think one of the unfortunate aspects, just of you know, I can't blame the model, but the ego, is that uh, I've even seen you have message boards, and I and I went to see where people tried to rank themselves, and there, it's just a bunch of yellow turquoises, you know, it's, which is to say. <laughs> It's everybody's at the end of the spiral. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I sense that own tendency in myself as you hear these yeah. stages and you really want to be as far along as possible. But I think to your point, it never, I'd never considered it, but like just going to the first ones and being like, what was I really supposed to get from red or blue? And did I deeply experience that? Because I think that red is probably one that is um, not well integrated for most people in society like the value of anger and uh the idea that it is appropriate in certain contexts is a novel concept and and, and certainly a novel feeling to to many people because it's just it's just it either explodes out of them at the wrong time or they, they can't handle it and i i sometimes include myself in that um yeah i i, so I, I practiced there. i practiced some red recently I was I was at the dentist like a month ago, and I spent all this time. It, it, I spent like three months working with the dentist to you know to fix a, a tooth, 
and he just he, I went there like ten times, and he just kept getting it wrong every time. Finally, I got so so you know frustrated with the whole situation, I wanted a refund, and then he refused to give me a refund because he already did so many attempts. And I'm just like, okay, I, I'm I'm pulling red on this I'm pulling red on this fucker. <laughs> so I I just like got in like a a big heated argument. I even started like bashing down on his door because he like, oh, he geez. he literally like wa he he walked away from me. He refused to have a conversation with me and like locked himself in his office. And I just I just started banging on his door, like everybody in the office just freaked the fuck out, like to the point where like <laughs> they they thought like some violence was gonna happen here. <laughs> so the, like they were ready to call the police on me. Oh jeez. Um, but anyways. Um, well, so yeah, so I, I, got, I walked. I walked out of there with a refund, and I felt good about it. And, <laughs> so and I, I felt very alive because I'm like, yeah, yeah you know, I, I exercised red at the appropriate time. Now, keep in mind, I did this in a sort of semi-conscious way, in the sense that, like, I knew what I was, what I was getting into. I was calibrated about it. I didn't completely, like, you know, let myself go. I was still reasonable. We were able to have a conversation and kind of discuss things peacefully after he opened his door. Um, and also, this was after many other attempts of trying to resolve the situation in a more conscious way, right? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't resort to that method right off the bat. That's like a last resort. And see, sometimes in a survival situation, a survival situation sort of breaks down to the point where you can't reason with a person or you can't use conscious means, in which case you use physical means. That's the mm -hmm. original way we just resolve our problems is physically. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So you, it's, to summarize, you would say, you know, how does one know when it is appropriate to tap into lower stages? Is it partially while remaining conscious? Is it, what is your perspective on that? Well, of course you can, I mean, you can also lapse in consciousness. I mean, I was also frustrated and, and angry. I was legitimately angry to a certain degree. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, the, like the Zen even talk about enlightened anger. <laughs> um, one of the mistakes people make when they learn about spirituality is they think, oh, well, if you're all loving and you're godlike and you're spiritual, then you're supposed to be this, you know, turn the other cheek doormat, sort of like Jesus figure who never gets angry, never yells at people, never cusses, never does this sort of, this is a, this is a sort of a silly caricature of what a, of, of what a truly conscious person behaves like. A truly conscious person isn't limited to that. A truly conscious person actually has an expanded range of all of his emotions and capacities such that um, he can use what is appropriate in the situation. It's very contextual, mm -hmm. right? So like if, if I was in a prison environment, I would, I would have to sort of act a little bit more tough than what mm -hmm. I would normally act like when I'm with you. Because it's a very different situation to be in a prison environment versus being in a hippie commune. When you're in a hippie commune, you can give each other hugs and kisses and, and give praises to each other, and, and that works well. But it doesn't work well in a prison environment. You won't survive in a prison environment this way. Got it. Got it. Awesome. Because, well, wanna... because stage red, see, stage red respects strength. So if you act like a hippie in a prison environment, they're going to not respect you and they're going to bully you. But if you walk into a prison and like punch someone in the face on your first day, that establishes uh, your your strength, and then they will actually respect you for that. And then they I imagine don't don't punch someone on the first day. <laughs> <laughs> just just put on a mean mug, maybe get some angry tattoos or something. Um, but awesome, I know Justin Justin's about to hit rush hour traffic, so I want to I want to save him <laughs> before we so we can wind down and um, momentarily. But there's a lot of topics that we've touched on, and I'll just say. Um, Leo on his channel has videos far longer than this podcast will be. So if, if any of the stuff is of interest to anyone who has listened, 
Um, Spiral Dynamics, he's got probably a two-plus-hour video on each stage, if that's of interest to you. He's got uh, his take on determinism, God, love, which we just scratched in this. So if, if, if you're watching any of this and you want to check it out, it's actualized.org. He, uh, you've got very uh, easily accessible titles. They're not clickbait, so you, you can easily catalog what, what you're looking for, unlike our channel where everything is about – they're all it's the same title 100 times <laughs> with the different topics. Um, but is there anything that you wanted to touch on before winding down? Uh yeah, I mean, there's there's so much more we could talk about. Maybe in the future we can dive deeper sure. in, into all these topics. Yeah, the, the, the difficulty in, in discussing this stuff is that it it starts to all the threads start to kind of unravel, and there's so many threads that we could follow, and they all lead into interesting directions, and and then ultimately they all interconnect together. So um, uh, I guess the most important thing is to realize here that this is not about for me. This is not about speculating about the nature of existence. It's not about building an ideology. It's really a deconstructive process. You're deconstructing your mind by self-reflecting, by contemplating, and by noticing how your mind works. Really, if you want to boil down what this work is about, it's simply about observation. You sit and you observe yourself very carefully, very neutrally, objectively, without any kind of biases. You observe, why do I crave that thing? Why do I fear this thing? Why does this make me angry? Uh, why do I have these doubts? Why do I believe in science? Why do I believe in religion? Where did my beliefs and ideas come from? And all of this, and then you start to question this more and more and more, and you do this very patiently over a process of years and decades. And as you do this, you actually discover certain patterns in how stuff works. You learn how your own mind works, and this gets you closer to truth. And it's also very practical, because as it turns out, you have a lot of patterns that you've developed unconsciously, beliefs and ideas and assumptions that you've picked up from your environment, which are not serving you very well and are holding you back from reaching higher levels of success, happiness, uh, you know, relationship stability and so forth. Because the truth is, is that the thing that is most problematic in all these different areas of your life, whether it's business, money, uh, sexual relationships, friendships, politics, it's your own freaking selfishness. That's what's getting in the way. You're getting in your own way. There's nothing but you getting in your own way. So the solution to that, of course, is to self-reflect and to start to notice how you're getting in your own way. And if you take this to a very radical extent for decades, maybe with the help of psychedelics as well, you can reach some of these crazy things that I've been talking about that right now for you might seem like they're just, you know, some woo-woo wishful thinking stuff, but you can reach, you know, crazy levels of love and so forth, but it takes a lot of shedding of the old ego self layers in order to get there. So uh, the work can be practical right now. You don't need to wait 20 years to get results, but you should also know that if you do this, do this work for 20 years, you invest a lot into it. There are enormous uh, payoffs that you can't even imagine yet that are waiting for you. It's just mm. a question of uh, how, how, how serious are you about doing it? How much do you want it? Yeah. What's interesting is that even this, and I'm, I, I'm aware, which is not a problem with it, but even this conversation for everyone listening from their perspective, this is the map and not the territory, which is to say, don't take my word. Don't take Leah's words. And I know you'd agree with me. Uh, if you want, head in the direction that either of us has pointed at various times and, and test various methods for yourself of knowing, understanding, and experiencing. But don't let 
the preconceived notion of what stage you're in or what to, what you'll find when you're on a psychedelic or any of that get in the way because this is the map. <laughs> at, at the best case, it's a map drawn from Leo's experience and my own, but it's not even necessarily the map that you will draw, and it is certainly not the territory that, that you are and will experience. Yeah, that's very important. Everyone's journey through life and self-awareness is going to be quite different because we face different survival challenges and we have different fears and desires and cravings and needs and so forth and we're at different stations in life so no no method or technique works for everybody so really uh my suggestion for you if you want to get serious about this work is um don't adopt anything as a belief and don't stick to any one teacher or teaching and not even my own words don't stick to that uh, really, to keep yourself safe, sort of approach it as a science of the self. You're going to be doing science on yourself. You don't even know what the method is that you're going to be using yet. Be open about the method. Experiment with different methods. Read different books. Watch different channels, different videos. Explore. Cross-reference different sources. What you'll notice is that this keeps you safe. This keeps you from getting trapped into one uh, sort of cul-de-sac of ideology or one belief system or one spiritual tradition or one um, paradigm or another or one set of assumptions or memes or whatever but like just be very um, be very open to experimenting throughout this entire process and as you're cross-referencing stuff your mind will put the pieces together slowly the pieces will start to assemble and you will start to understand what the hell is really going on in in life and that is perhaps one of the most satisfying things that that I'm most passionate about as as a result of this work is just how deeply you are able to understand life it's so satisfying not only is it useful but it's just it's, it's extremely sad because because most people don't know how confused they are about what's going on like they don't know what's going on in politics they don't know why terrorism exists why there's mass shootings why people don't get along why there's debates on youtube like all this stuff is happening around them why they have fights with their family why they can't make money and like why they can't maintain a relationship but all of this starts to become clear the more you do this work and then it just gives you a sort of a, a peace of mind awesome let's find down there man Thank you for, uh, for reaching out. I enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.